Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through chapter 16, verse 5. There have been lots of significant partnerships. Well, in all of human history, partnerships are an important thing, but in the course of sports and music is kind of where my mind goes initially. Like, where, where have we seen significant partnerships? I think sports and music. So, uh, so you might think about, if, if, if you're from sort of my era with the NBA, you might think about Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman, that group that was with the Bulls. If you're a little bit older and you grew up in this area, you might think about Larry Bird and Danny Ainge um, and, uh, and those guys. Musically, you might think Paul McCartney and John Lennon, right? The Beatles or younger, maybe U2, Bono and The Edge. You guys care about this terribly, I can tell. You know, all sorts of partnerships, right? Different groups of people that came together and produced something more that they could do together than, than they could do separately, well, partnerships are incredibly significant. They're significant in the Bible. You see that from, from start to finish, but we've especially seen it in the book of Acts. And so the passage this morning really kind of explains that and brings it to a head, showing the importance, the significance of partnerships, how to think about ministry partnerships. That's really what our passage is about. So hear the word of the Lord, chapter 15, verse 36 through chapter 16, verse 5. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance, observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So in this passage on ministry partnerships, there's two truths for us to see and then two imperatives for us to follow. And that's the way that we'll look at the passage. This is on the back there on the, on the outline. So we're going to see first that some partnerships hold back kingdom work. It's the first thing we're going to see. And, and second, we're going to see that God uses our convictions to multiply kingdom efforts. Those are two lessons that we're going to be taught. And then there's two imperatives for us to follow at the end of our passage. The first one is pursue partnerships to strengthen churches. It's the first thing for us to do. And then finally, lay down your uh, preferences for the sake of ministry. That's the final imperative we'll see. So, so look at how this is set up for us. Look at how the passage begins again. Chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Well, we've seen Paul and Barnabas do this before, where they're going back to places where they had already shared the gospel, already started to minister to people, set up churches. So they do that, but then they go back to encourage those brothers and sisters. This is chapter 14, verse 21. We see him doing this back a chapter earlier. When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby. And had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So remember, God's not just interested in the kind of ministry that sees people converted. 
that just tells people the gospel at the front end and then gets people to believe that gospel initially, and then that's it, and then you take off. The, the Lord's not interested in that. The work isn't done at that point. No, somebody's conversion, that's really just the beginning of Christian ministry. It is Christian ministry, but it's just the beginning when somebody's converted. The vast majority of Christian ministry happens in the decades after somebody has become a Christian, where, where that person is, like Galatians 4.19 says, where they're having Christ formed in them. So someone's initial conversion to Christ, when they first trust in Jesus, that's really just the doorway that's taking them into the ministry that will take place in their life through the rest of their life. And, and Paul and Barnabas and the Lord, they're just as interested in that lifelong ministry of discipleship. So that's why these men want to travel back to the cities where they had seen people be converted, but they want to go back and they want to strengthen them in Christ. They want to continue to preach the gospel and explain Christ and encourage them in their faith. In the words of verse 41 in chapter 16, verse 5, they want to strengthen the churches. Okay, so, so far, so good. Paul and Barnabas have this idea. Let's go back and do this thing we do, encourage these churches in their faith. But then they hit a snag. So verse 37 of chapter 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. So oftentimes confusing. In Acts in particular, you'll see guys that have multiple names, right? So sometimes Peter is called Cephas, for one example. Well, Mark is also called John, but this guy is the guy that wrote the gospel of Mark. So that's who we're talking about here. Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. He's somebody that we're, we're first introduced to back in chapter 12, verse 12. So he's a Christian in the Jerusalem church. So he's a guy that apparently got converted pretty early in that ministry. And you might remember when Peter gets imprisoned and the believers are praying that Peter will be released. And remember, Peter shows up and knocks on the door and they say, well, that couldn't be Peter, right? Which is the same type of thing that we do. It's easy to not trust in the Lord. Well, it's, it's Mark's mom. It's her house that those Christians are meeting in. So that's the first place where we're introduced to Mark. There's this Christian there in the church in Jerusalem. Mark's mother is the house that they're meeting at. Well, by the end of chapter 12, when we're introduced to Mark, by the end of chapter 12, Paul and Barnabas had seen enough of him to think he'd be a valuable asset in ministry. So they take him along with them on some of these missionary journeys. So this is chapter 13, verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. This is Paul and Barnabas. And they had John, John Mark, and they had John to assist them. So, so we've got Paul and Barnabas and Mark that are here in, in chapter 13. They're on the island of Cyprus. They're doing ministry. They're encouraging these Christians. But then when it's time to leave there, Paul and Barnabas go to the mainland. They go to Perga, but Mark doesn't go with them. So he leaves at that point and he goes back home. He goes back to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Okay, so with that backstory, now we go back to our passage. We'll read verse 37 again. Now we have some context. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Okay, so Barnabas wants to take Mark for the next leg of this missionary journey. But Paul thinks that's a bad idea because Mark had kind of flaked out when they had been on this first missionary journey, and he ends up going back to Jerusalem. So, so this is the rub. 
They both want to do the same thing. We want to go back through and encourage the churches, but they disagree on how to do it. And in particular, whether to take Mark or not to take Mark. So, so that's the disagreement that they have. And clearly there, there's not a compromise available, right? So sometimes there's compromise with making decisions, but you can't half take Mark and half not take Mark, right? No, it doesn't work that way. You either take him or you don't take him. You, you have to pick. Either Mark comes or he doesn't. And Paul and Barnabas were both convinced in their own minds. In fact, look at verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So, so neither of them is willing to bend. Neither one of them thinks there's room for, for their judgment to be wrong. They're both convinced that the best way to go about this ministry, in their mind, is the best way to do it. Now, now, was that because of pride on their part? So maybe the Lord would have said, come on, one of you guys just bend, right? This, this isn't that big of a deal. Is that something that's happening here? Well, we're not given any indication of that in the passage. No, it, it looks like Paul legitimately thought it would be best for the kingdom to not take Mark, and it looks like Barnabas legitimately thought it would be best for the kingdom to take Mark. So look at what ends up happening, verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. So, so they separate. They go two different directions. Barnabas and Mark, they go to Cyprus, this island where they administer earlier, and, and then Paul goes to the north towards Cilicia. So, so this, by the way, sort of as a side note, is one of those pieces of evidence that Scripture really is true, so something like this, a story like this where two Christian leaders are disagreeing enough to separate, this isn't the kind of thing you would put in a document if you were making it up to try to fake the world out and make them think that Christianity is real when you know it's not really real. So it's kind of like the defections of the um, apostles in the gospel stories where Peter, who's an early Christian leader that everybody would have known, oh, he's one of the leaders in this faith where he denies Jesus three times. That's not the kind of detail you would include if all of this was a fabrication. Right, You would have left that out. You wouldn't have invented that. Or all of the disciples deserting Jesus when he gets arrested. Same thing here. If this was made up, church leaders, you would not include this kind of story where church leaders disagree enough uh, to, uh, to separate. But here it is, and, and that's because humans didn't polish the Bible. It's true. It's God's word. These words are exactly what happened. It's 100% God's word. So, so Paul and Barnabas, they disagree. As a result, they, they separate. So did they make a mistake here? So that's a question that we're forced to ask as we read this story. Did they make a mistake? Should they not have separated? Because, because anytime we see a group of Christians separate, especially because of a disagreement, I think our tendency is to think, oh, that must be sinful, right? Anytime believers have to separate from one another, there must be something bad that has happened. And sometimes that is undoubtedly true. Scripture talks about that. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, Paul says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he was saying, hey, the divisions in the church there at Corinth, the Lord actually uses those because it helps people realize some of these folks are wrong and some of them are right. And the production of this division shows that. It, it was because of sin. So there are divisions, many of them, that are caused by sin. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you, what you think about Jesus entirely, you need to know the most significant kind of division in this universe 
is the division between you and your creator. And that's the division that was, was created entirely on our end. So God was stationary and loving the entire time. It's us as a human race that moved away from God because of our sin. Each one of us individually has done that too. And that's the most significant kind of division in the universe. And if you're not a Christian, it's certainly the most significant division for you to think about. The fact that you're divided right now, you've, you've turned away from your creator. And one day, you'll have to meet that creator. You'll have to stand before him and give an account for the fact that you turned your back and walked away out of sin. But of course, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers forgiveness for those sins. He offers reconciliation to cover all of those sins and that rebellion that we've all participated in. He covers it with his blood and brings us to God, not as enemies, but as his children. Of course, the, the way for that to be affected, the way for that for you to become God's child is through trust in Christ alone. So you've got to turn from trust in yourself and you've got to turn and trust in Christ to be your savior. If, if you're interested in talking more about that, then find me after the service or shoot me an email. My email address is on the back of the bulletin at the bottom or grab another member of this church so that we can talk more about, about the gospel and the good news of, of Christ. So, so all this to say, there's certainly divisions that are caused by sin. But is that the case here? Should, should Paul and Barnabas have done something different under the circumstances? Well, to answer that question, we should look for the way the narrator frames the story and the details that he gives. Because something that you see as a reader of scripture is that when somebody messes up in scripture and doesn't do what they should do, whether they're a believer or a non-believer, the narrator tends to make that clear, in particular if they've done something wrong. So, so do we see some of those hints here? So for example, is there anything in Luke's telling of this story that lets us know it was simply sinful pride, maybe, on the part of Paul or Barnabas that caused the separation? No, there's not. So there's nothing when you're reading this story that tends to point towards those sinful motivations. It's not like in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira uh, uh, lie to the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit lets us in on their sinful motivations, tells us this is why they did this thing. There's none of that here. Well, does, does Barnabas, do Barnabas or Paul, do they rebuke the other one? The way that Peter rebukes the magician, Simon, in Acts chapter 8. No, there's no sort of rebuke here from, from either one of them. Is, is there anything in the passage that indicates that God withdrew his blessing from one of them, either Paul or Barnabas, moving forward? No. No, he didn't withdraw his blessing from either Paul or Barnabas. So Paul's the one who's kind of the stickler, right? He's the one that says, no, I'm not going to bend on this. I'm not going to bring along Mark. And if you want to bring him Barnabas, then, then I should go my own way. And he separates over it. But look at the note we're given in verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So the church is still commending Paul and the Lord is still blessing his ministry, right? Even on the heels of this division. What about Barnabas? If Paul didn't do something wrong by separating, then, then did Barnabas do something wrong? Did the Lord quit using him maybe for ministry? No. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Paul is still commending Barnabas as sort of a model apostle, as a model man who's been sent out in the ministry, who's doing selfless gospel work. Same thing with Mark. So at the end of 2 Timothy, this letter that Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy, this is what he says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So all this to say, from what we can tell textually, from looking at this text, the way that Luke 
gives it to us. And then historically, the rest of the New Testament, no one's rebuked for this decision to separate. Nobody, nobody's, uh, nobody's penalized for it. In fact, we're, we're given no indication that anyone did anything wrong. And it really makes sense. So, so just think about what their options were. Either Paul or Barnabas could have ignored their judgment and just sort of bent, even though they didn't think they should, just sort of bent for the sake of formal unity maybe or for some other reason. But the thing is, they, they both knew that they'd have to give an account before the Lord for how they conducted the mission. They knew they would have to stand before God and give an account for how they responded to what they thought they should do. This is Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Paul knew he's not going to stand before God and be giving an, an account for Barnabas, but God Barnabas thought we should do this thing. No, he's going to have to give an account for what he himself did with what he thought was right. So then each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. James chapter four, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So neither one of them thought it'd be pleasing to the Lord to go against their judgment. And, and that only leaves them with two options. Either they put the brakes on the ministry and they just say, okay, we can't agree on what we think the Lord would have us do with Mark. So let's just not go. Let's just stay here, not pursue this ministry. We'll just hang tight. That's option one. Option two is let's separate and each sort of go our own, our own different direction. Well, clearly, it's, it's that second one that's the better option. And what we see here is that some partnerships hold back ministry. That's what Paul and Barnabas recognized. They didn't want to hit the brakes. They knew that would be displeasing to the Lord to not do anything. So they separate and they go on to the ministry in two different directions. Some partnerships hold back ministry. And it's good to, to recognize historically, this is where different denominations come from. So, so coming out of the Reformation, you have churches that agreed on the gospel. So in the 16th century, they recover scripture. They start looking at what it says. They recover the gospel, right? That's the Protestant Reformation. Well, coming out of that, all these Christians agreed on the gospel, praise the Lord. But there were certain things that they didn't agree on. So the Lord's Supper is one good example. You can read about that historically. The men's Bible study, we went through a, a study on the history of the Reformation. We saw that how lots of these different groups disagreed on what the Bible taught about the Lord's Supper, which wouldn't be a problem except for the fact that churches are commanded to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So you can't not do it. You can't hit the brakes on it. You have to decide how to present it. But before God, there's Christians that disagree about the way to present the Lord's Supper. So you either hit the brakes on it or what happened historically, groups of Christians started another gospel-preaching church. Where then they're presenting the supper in a way where they think the Lord would have them do it, where their conscience could be at rest. So hopefully you can see how this works. And instead of hitting the brakes on the Lord's Supper or some other thing that we're commanded to do, there can be a division in ministry partnerships. Same thing we see here with, with Paul and, uh, and with Barnabas. So to ensure the thing Scripture tells the church to do is happening and, and to ensure that folks aren't going against their conscience— it makes sense to separate sometimes for, for the good of, of ministry. Some divisions inside the church are, are obviously sinful and displeasing to the Lord, but some division is, is actually merited because it allows kingdom work to, to take place. So hopefully this is a helpful category for us. The, the presence of, of different denominations in Christianity, the presence of theologically diverse churches, even in our region, 
right? There's a diversity in terms of way churches do different things. Some of that may be the result of sin, but, but many of those divisions aren't. So it's, it's good to recognize what we see in our passage. Some partnerships hold back kingdom work. But we could also put it positively. So it's not just sort of in that negative light we could put it. Some divisions actually multiply kingdom work. That's the other way to look at it. Some, some divisions multiply ministry efforts. And that's exactly what happens here with Paul and Barnabas. It's our second point. So God uses our convictions to multiply ministry efforts. So again, they divide over this issue of whether to take Mark with them or not. Well, look at what happens. Second half of verse 39. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So if you look at a, at a map, Paul and Titus, they go due north, basically. And, and, and then this other group, Barnabas and Mark, they, they go to the west. Basically, they're going in different directions. It's not that they're going in the same direction and one is a little bit behind the other, or maybe they're going to slightly different towns. No, they're going in, in completely different directions. And basically what, what we see here is that God uses this good uh, uh, or produces this good outcome. He's multiplying the ministry. It's no longer just going in one direction, but, but now it's going in two. And again, God uses our convictions to multiply ministry efforts. So, so Paul and Barnabas, they disagree. That disagreement causes them to dissolve their ministry partnership, at least for the immediate future. And that dissolving produces double the ministry. That's the thing we see happening here. In fact, Paul picks up another brother to take along with him. In verse 40, this guy named, named Silas, who he probably wouldn't have recruited if not for splitting away from, from Barnabas and Mark. So not only is God bigger than our different convictions, which of course he is, he also uses our different convictions for the good of his kingdom and for the good of ministry. And the net effect is what we see in chapter 16, verse five. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So, so practically the church has had important disagreements throughout history those disagreements oftentimes lead to different churches being planted, but praise God, right? God uses those different convictions to multiply ministry efforts. In fact, just think about what would happen. Let's say that all the churches in our region, all the Christians in our region were convinced of the same things theologically. Let's say we were all convinced of all these particularities, all of these things in church government that are required to have a church together, all these different things about theology aside from the gospel, well, what would probably happen? Well, I think a big part of what would happen is we would sort of just have a, a super church in Bangor probably, and we would just all drive into that super church because we all agree on all of those things, and that'd be a pretty easy thing to do. I think there's a good chance if that was the case, Grace Bible Church might not be here, and East Eddington Community Church might not be down the road, and the Bridge Church might not be down the road in Bucksport. But historically, God hasn't let that happen. Instead, he allows these divisions to happen, and then church planting happens as a result of that. Again, the same thing we see with Paul and Barnabas here. It reminds us how good and wise God is. God uses our different convictions to multiply ministry efforts. But, but notice what Paul doesn't do here. He doesn't split away from Barnabas and then just go it alone from that point on. He doesn't say like, you know what? I got burned kind of in this division. This was a hard thing. So I'm just not going to partner with anybody anymore. I'm just going to do it myself. No, again, he does the exact opposite. He immediately looks for another partnership. Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas 
and departed. And then he picks up another partner, chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So why did Paul go to all this trouble? Well, it's because he wanted those partnerships. And that's because God designed ministry to be a collective effort. He didn't design it to be sort of a go alone, right? Christianity isn't, isn't that way. It's, it's supposed to be a collective effort. It's corporate in nature. We see that all the way back in Mark 6. When Jesus sends out the disciples, he sends them out two by two. You remember? Not solo. He sends them out in groups. And we've seen missions in the book of Acts work the same way. So in the beginning, you've got Peter and John going out together. And then since chapter 13, we've had Paul and Barnabas doing the same thing. They've, they've got locked arms. They're going out together, not by themselves. In fact, you see it even in this passage with all the plural language, an easy thing to overlook, but there's not much singular language here in our passage. It's almost all plural. So we've got us and we in verse 36. We've got them in verse 37 and 38. We've got they in verse 39 and in chapter 16, verse 4 and chapter 16, verse 5. And that's because God designed ministry to be a collective effort. And this is our third point this morning. Pursue partnerships to strengthen churches. And this is something we, sh- we should do as a church collectively and as, as individual Christians. So, so think about the individual part first. As an individual, pursue partnerships to strengthen churches. And this starts fundamentally with, with church membership. So being a member of a local church, it's the most important partnership you can have to strengthen the church. Listen to the imagery we're given in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. Paul says, And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So he's saying, okay, in the church, God gives leaders and teachers to build up the membership, to build up individual Christians. So we can all be working together to build up the body of Christ. But, but then he talks more about this, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what he's saying is individual church members, when we come together collectively, it's the body of Christ and we're all serving a purpose. It's like different ligaments and muscles and all of these things. So as you get older and your neck hurts one night, and so then you're favoring your neck and then your back hurts, and then your knee ends up, you know, all of those things that, that, that I found out when you turn 40 or like significant things. Before that, I didn't know that. Everybody told me and I just thought, of course, that's not going to happen to me. It happens. Clockwork. So anyway, that's what you guys have to look forward to if you're sub 40. But all those things work together. That's the way the body of Christ works. We're all supposed to be encouraging one another, building into one another in love, pointing one another to the gospel. It's the most important partnership that we have as Christians is to one another in, in the local church. And so if you're a Christian, are you participating in that fellowship? Or are you participating in, uh, in, that, in that ministry partnership? And the first question is, are you a member of the church? You know, if you're a Christian, have, have you committed to a group of Christians and pastors in all the ways that Jesus commands in the New Testament to be partnered in that way? And, and if not, why? 
Why wouldn't you want to be on, on the front lines of ministry in that way? Involved in the most important and, and intimate partnership for strengthening the church. The way verse 41 says it. If, if, if you're not a Christian, or I'm sorry, if you are a Christian, then, then you need the church. And, and the church needs you. And we don't need one another in the non-committal way where we kind of just hang out once a week and there's no accountability to it and there's no expectation to it. No, we need one another in the committed way that, that Jesus prescribes to us. And if you are a member of the church, the question for you is, am I building into the body? And am I being built into by the body? So, so is your attendance on Sundays regular? Do you ever participate in, in the Bible studies or, or the small groups? Do you take any of those pathways to, to pursue growth in that way? Do, do you have at least one or two other members who aren't your spouse who you, you're confessing sin to regularly and asking for accountability and asking for encouragement? Do you ever ask advice from members in the church that you feel like are further along in their walk with Christ than you are? And are you turning around and seeking to encourage those that aren't quite as far along in their walk with Christ? Pursue partnerships to strengthen the church. But then we also get to do this collectively as a church body. In particular, we, we get to do this for ministries outside of these four walls, where we get to partner with other ministers of the gospel and help support the strengthening of other churches. So, so what kind of ministry partners should we look for as a church? Well, how are the folks chosen in our passage? Look at verse 40 of chapter 15. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Okay, so who is Silas? We're told earlier in chapter 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So Silas was a man who was commended as a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Same thing with Timothy. He's commended by the church in Lystra and in Iconium. We're going to see that in chapter 16. So that's one thing that we're, we're looking for here. The, these are ministers who have been commended by a local church. And in fact, that, that commendation, that endorsement, that's far more important than, than a commendation by a parachurch group or, or by a board of some kind. It's definitely more important than somebody's own solo evaluation of, of themselves. You know, sometimes it's easy to believe that if somebody thinks they're called to ministry, that's all we should need to hear. You know, who are we to say that somebody's not called to ministry or not, not gifted at it. But the Bible's picture is really different. So somebody should definitely have a desire for ministry. First Timothy 3 talks about that. But, but passages like ours tell us that giftedness isn't up to the individual to decide. No, it's, it's local churches that come alongside somebody and vouch for their giftedness and are encouraging them in, in those particular ways. So those are the kinds of qualifications that, that we should be looking for. And praise God, our church gets to partner with folks like these outside of our church for the strengthening of other churches. So just a few examples. We have a line in our budget to help support the ministry of Christ the King Church. that's down in Belfast, Maine. A pastor named Garrett Susie. We help support that ministry so, so that they can be strengthened. We have a line for our brother Harshit Singh, who's at a church in Lucknow, India, and serving faithfully there, also raising up pastors, indigenous guys to be sent out and pastor other churches in, in northern India. Lord willing, we'll incorporate a line this coming year to help Seth Pearson pay for seminary as we send him out to be built into so that he can then turn and faithfully pastor a local church. And Lord willing, if, if our budget grows, we'll be able to look for other God-glorifying partnerships like these. 
Because individually and corporately, we should pursue partnerships to strengthen churches. Chapter 15, verse 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so we see Paul and Barnabas pursuing ministry partnerships in order to do this. We see these multiplied efforts for ministry that, that are born out of this disagreement at the beginning of our passage, those, those opposing convictions of Paul and Barnabas. And again, hopefully this helps us see that all divisions among Jesus' church aren't bad. However, many are bad, like we talked about earlier. In fact, sometimes it's easy for us to claim that division is based on our convictions, but really it's not at all. Sometimes there's division in the church that's, that's based more than anything else on preference. It doesn't have to do with conscience. It doesn't have to do with what, what we think Scripture teaches. It just has to do with our tastes, our individual desires. Church history is, is full of those kinds of divisions. So you might not be familiar with this, but in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, there were tons of churches that divided over the style of music. That was like a typical thing. Happened all the time. So there would be folks that would say, hey, we need to have a guitar as the accompaniment. And another group that would say, no, 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 we need to have a piano. And neither one of them would bend, so they split the church over it. And half the guitar folks went one way, the piano folks went the other way. Or sometimes there were churches that said, hey, we only should sing songs that were written more than 50 years ago. None of this new stuff. And then there were other folks in that church that said, hey, we should only sing songs that are contemporary and younger than 50 years. None of this old stuff. And neither one of them would bend, and so they split the church. And the contemporary folks went one way, the traditional folks went the other way. And this is our final point this morning. Lay down your preferences for the sake of ministry. Look at Timothy's example here in chapter 16. This young man that Paul brings along for missionary service becomes a pastor. We know that later on in the New Testament. Chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Okay, now... If you were here last week, if you've read Acts 15 before, if you're familiar with these particular conversations, then you know that circumcision wasn't required in the Lord's eyes. That's what chapter 15 was all about, was saying, the Jews were saying, no, new converts, if you're a Gentile, if you're a non-Jew, you need to get circumcised, you need to follow the law of Moses. If you want to be saved, it's faith in Christ plus those other things. The burden of chapter 15 is to show us that is not the case. The gospel, salvation, comes by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any good work, even including performing the Old Testament law. In fact, these guys, Paul and, uh, and Timothy, look at what a big part of their ministry was. Verse 4 of chapter 16. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So part of Barnabas's job is to say to these young Christians, you don't have to get circumcised to be saved. You don't have to follow the Old Testament law. So why in the world did Paul suggest this to Timothy? And why did he do it? He didn't have to. It wasn't required for salvation. So why did he do it? A few reminders without getting too gross. There's no anesthesia at this point, right? We're talking the first century. This would be pretty painful. And typically, just think about your own life. Typically, we don't do something that's painful unless it's imposed on us or just absolutely required of us. Humans are pretty good at avoiding pain at every turn when we can. So what in the world is going on here? Well, even though it's not required for salvation, Paul and Timothy know 
that Timothy's circumcision will be helpful for ministry. And we're, we're told that why that is here. So even though Timothy's dad was a Gentile, his mom was Jewish. And the Jews expected that if there was a child of a Jewish mother, that that child should be circumcised. And in fact, the non-circumcised son of a Jewish mother was seen as an apostate Jew, as a violator of the Mosaic Covenant. There would be times where if people knew that, they wouldn't even let him into the temple. So Paul and Timothy knew that this was going to be a hang-up for ministry. He's going to be ministering to non-Christian Jews in the synagogue in particular, and it's going to be a roadblock. He's not going to be able to minister to those particular folks. So even though it wasn't required to be saved, it'd be helpful in ministry. And so for that reason, Paul and Timothy decided to do it. Ministry was more important than personal comfort and preferences. Listen to the way Paul says it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, so in other words, he's saying it's not required that I fulfill anybody's expectations for me, only the Lord's. He's the only one I have to worry about. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That's exactly what Timothy is doing in this passage. It's what Paul commends. It's what Timothy does. So even though it's not demanded from him, for the good of ministry, Timothy as an adult goes through this surgical procedure. And so the question for us is, can I relate? Can I relate at all? So we've, we've heard stories about somebody donating a kidney to a family member, right? A sibling that needs it, so the other sibling donates it. You've probably heard stories about parents doing crazy, scary things, running into a house that's on fire maybe to, to get one of their kids. I think we can relate to all of that. Certainly if you have a sibling, certainly if you have children, those two examples you can relate with. But, but as a Christian who, who is by definition a minister, a minister of the gospel, can you relate to what Timothy did here? Can you put yourself in his shoes the way you could with that mom who runs into the, the building on fire for the child? Can you relate here, in this instance, to what he does for the good of ministry? Or does the thought of going to such inconvenient and painful lengths for the good of ministry seem crazy to us? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. As, as those who, who Christ has purchased with his blood and who even now he employs for his mission, we should be willing to lay down our preferences, even our own comfort, for the sake of ministry. So that's the question to ask ourselves. What limits am I placing on my ministry to those around me? What limits am I placing on my ministry to those around me? So, so when are you simply unwilling to have a conversation with the gospel because you perceive it will just be too uncomfortable for you? So you're just putting that limit there. I'll do this. I'll go to this length. But once it would become this uncomfortable, I'm not going to do it. When, when are you tempted to, to leave your church for a reason of preference? It has nothing to do with conscience, has nothing to do with your understanding of Scripture. Are you willing to lay down your preferences for the sake of ministry? Are, are you willing to do anything inside of conscience in order to do what these apostles are doing? In verse 41 and then in chapter 16, verse 5, to do anything inside of conscience to strengthen the churches. So this is what the Lord's telling us. Lay down your preferences for the sake of ministry. So, so as we close, our passage makes it clear. Partnerships and ministry are important. 
they're worth pursuing. But, but the moving forward and the effectiveness of ministry is also important, which is why some ministry partnerships need to be moved on from, need to be dissolved. But the last note we want to think about, as Christians, the, the most important ministry partnership we all have will never be dissolved. So church membership is the most significant among humans. But as a Christian, you have a partnership that's more fundamental than that, much more fundamental. And it'll never be dissolved. As a Christian, you've been partnered with... You've been fully united to the one who didn't go through a minor medical procedure on your behalf. He gave his entire body on your behalf. He gave his earthly life to pay for your sins on the cross. He he didn't just lay down his preferences. He laid down his life for you. Like we're told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, he will never leave you nor forsake you. So, So while human partnerships sometimes get dissolved, that partnership never will be dissolved between us and our Savior. He'll continue to faithfully strengthen us in the faith for his glory. Let's pray together.